Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you. So glad that you are here, whether you're in the house or worshiping somewhere online, locally, or other parts of the world. Uh, we are so glad to be a part of your spiritual journey. We're just humbled that you allow us to be a part of your lives, you know, in some way uh, in your walk with Jesus, or just curious to figure out who Jesus is. And I want to thank everyone in our church family for your generosity and your faithfulness, uh, just serving your church and God doing so many amazing things through you. And I want to thank you for your understanding uh, for this weekend. Uh, I would so much rather be with you in person. You can see that I'm fine. I am well. I'm experiencing no symptoms. I fully expect to get a test tomorrow uh, for it to come back uh, negative and for me to be on my way serving, uh, resuming all activities. But I will tell you, uh, I do plan on kind of tightening up my bubble a little bit. When we started this whole pandemic thing and we kind of got started getting back in the building, I kind of made a commitment that I'm going to be a little risky and I'm, I, I, I want to do my job. That if somebody needs a hug, they need to meet with their pastor, uh, they need some sort of close contact, uh, they need some sort of embrace, uh, making sure that I'm okay, and I'm going to meet them where they are, and I'm going to try to meet them as their pastor, whatever that need is, meeting with them, a small group, whatever. And so that is how, uh, here this last week, you know, I was exposed to someone that I love and care for very deeply. And, uh, you know, I just kind of had had them do, do the right thing. So I, I will tell you that I am going to be kind of tightening up my ship here for the next, next few weeks, the little bubble that I'm living in, uh, because I do not want to miss anything for Christmas Eve. I want to be here in person on Christmas Eve and to join you in all these activities. And to remind you, uh, here on the screen, a little slide, remind you what's going to be happening on Christmas Eve, kind of reminder, so you can invite people to come, is that on the Wednesday, the 23rd, uh, we're having our traditional worship at 6 o'clock in the sanctuary. And then on the 24th, 3, 5, and 7 o'clock, right here in the ark, please be inviting, 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 inviting. And I would be remiss if I didn't say this coming weekend we're having our family Christmas service. Now, here's what this means if you worship it Saturday night or you worship on Sunday morning at, at 8 o'clock. Is that your worship times will not be in play. Uh, you will show up here. There will be nobody here except folks getting ready for the family Christmas service as our children uh, lead us in to understand the Christmas story as the way only children can do. So I want to invite you to come, be a part of all those services. Uh, make sure you come uh, with a mask so you have the face, your face covered. Uh, we'll have practice physical distancing. We'll have plenty of space as you can do the ark and the sanctuary. So there's plenty of room for you to spread out. Uh, washing your hands, doing all those things, but invite, 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 invite you if you're going to be here in, in the same way with uh, in your homes and online. Now, and something else, on December the 27th, that's the Sunday after Christmas, we're only going to do one worship time that weekend. Uh, we're not going to have anybody in the building uh, either. Here's what we're doing. We're going to do a virtual worship on the Sunday, the 27th. That way we'll give all of our servants a rest who have been serving so faithfully. Uh, we've just been in here on Christmas with big crowds. And what we're going to do is we're going to just fumigate this place. Defumigate, I guess, is the better word. We're going to sanitize it uh, from top to bottom, get it all cleaned up and ready. So on the 27th, gather your family, friends, send the word, be there in your home, get your cup of coffee, your hot cocoa, whatever, and we'll have worship on the 27th, and we'll deliver it to you in your home, your device, wherever that you are. So lots going on, and we're about here to go into Word. If you have your Bibles, you can find them, and we're going to start off in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
But uh, I want to begin in prayer. God, we find these, these two worlds colliding, this, this world of the world celebrating the birth, the anticipation of Christ, but also still trying to fight through this pandemic, God, this COVID-19, which is wrecking havoc with so many people's lives. And God, even this weekend, I find myself heart, my heart heavy as I continue to get these requests and these texts, these prayer needs of people who have been uh, tested positive for the virus and experiencing some symptoms that are very painful and very difficult, and there's some fear. And there are others, God, who have already lost loved ones. And God, in our own church family, there are people who have gone on to be with you where COVID has been the final straw that just took them out of the game here on planet Earth. And so, God, we find ourselves grieving in the midst of this great time of celebration. So we ask you to open up your word, God, to, to enlighten us, to teach us, to help us be the people that you need us to be, but also the people that our family and our friends need us to be in this season of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, well this weekend we are wrapping up a message series we're calling The Thrill of Hope. And we started off talking about this reconciliation with God, that God wants to reconcile us to himself, and that compels us to be reconciled to one another. Now, we started off with this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 18, and it goes like this. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. Notice what it says, reconciling the world to himself. That, that, that is where we are going this weekend, God reconciling the world. Would anybody agree with me that the world needs a little reconciling? That we have a little division in our world? Would anybody agree the United States of America, right here at our own community, around where we live? Uh, it could use a little bit of reconciling. Now, here's the truth about this world, our world we live in, and the truth about all of us. We have this space between us, this space that's sometime between us and God that he sent Jesus to close. But we also have this space between each other. There is this distance between us. And this space that's between you and me, between human beings, it is not static. It doesn't just stay in the same place. Because of our sinful nature, because of our free will, so often we tend to drift away from each other. We notice the differences, we're hurt, we're broken, and our tendency is to pull away and to be tested and guarded and not let people get into our space, and we're careful about getting into other people's space. But reconciliation reconciliation compels you and me, God's understanding of reconciliation, to come together, to close the distance, to create these relationships, to create this, this togetherness, this connectedness, to restore relationships the very way that Jesus does himself in Scripture. Now, the question, what we ask ourselves is, why? Why would I, why do I want to be reconciled to any other person? Why would I want to do that? In this same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. 
that because of the experience of God's love that I have in my life, I'm compelled, down in verse 18, to become, embrace this ministry of reconciliation. In fact, it says over here in verse 19 that he has made us, he has given us this message of reconciliation. So the love of God compels me. And then he says down here in verse 15 that now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I no longer live for myself. No longer live for myself. That, I, in fact, I no longer live, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. And I live for the purposes of Christ, not myself. That means, he says over in verse 20, that same chapter, I am an ambassador for Christ. Ah, I don't live for myself. I'm an ambassador for Christ. Now, an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who is representative of someone else. Uh, they're like an emissary. Uh, they are someone who has the authority to speak on behalf of someone else. They are someone who is not elected. They are chosen by the person in charge, and then they are sent out. And they go to a foreign land. Now, they stay a citizen of the land from which they come. But they go and speak on behalf and act on behalf of the one for whom sends them for their mission and for their purpose. The Scripture says that you and I are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. That once you declare that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you have this citizenship in heaven. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he sends you and me into the world as an ambassador for Christ with this ministry of reconciliation. Now, I want you to know this is not a new idea. This is not come on the screen just, just when Jesus shows up in the New Testament. I'm just going to show you quickly an obscure little verse. We'll put it on the screen from 2 Samuel 14, 14. Don't try to turn there. It's, it takes too long to find it. Uh, one little verse. It says, he, that is God, devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Now, that little word devises in the Hebrew little mean, literally means to invent new ideas. Here's the idea. God is continually inventing new ideas for people who feel like they are banished, who feel so far from him and so far from one another, to reconcile them, to bring them back together. Now, I think it's interesting, a little word devise. Uh, that's where you and I get our word devious. It kind of has the implication that God is kind of cleverly, sneakily looking for multiple new ways all the time to draw you and me back to him, but also us to each other. Now, I want you to notice this morning when you're looking at your message notes on your app or whatever, but we have no message notes this morning. There, there are no fill-in-the-blanks per se. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to work through a passage of Scripture, and I want to deal with a question. And the question is, how far do I need to go into the world to reconcile my neighbor, to reconcile my neighbor back to me, but also to give my neighbor a chance to be reconciled themselves to God? How far do I go? So we're going to work through a passage, and then secondly, I'm going to tell you a story to kind of help connect all this together, and then thirdly, uh, you're going to hear about your birthday gift to Jesus and how God is using you in very practical, real ways to reconcile the world back to Him. Now, in Luke chapter 10, uh, we're going to be looking at a story that many of you, if you grew up in church, uh, you probably heard it first of all in Sunday school. 
It was probably taught to you on a flannel graph. And some of you right now are going, flannel graph, is that an app? Is there an app for that? Is that an app? No, no, no. Flannel graph is not an app. And I'm here to tell you this little story. Uh, it is not a children's story. It is not. Uh, you think it is, uh, but it's not. If you've been in church for a long time, that's probably when you first learned this little thing uh, as a child. Uh, but last weekend and the weekend before that, the two stories we read in Genesis, uh, they were not children's stories either. They were probably more like R. Maybe one of them a little bit R plus. Uh, this one right here is not that far, but it's not a children's story. It's probably something like PG-13. And I promise you this, that if a Hebrew listener was hearing Jesus tell this story, when he got to a certain part, they would have gone, whoa, 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 this is not fitting for kids to hear. Now, if you're not grown up in church, you're welcome here. If you're not even sure if you believe in God, you're watching this online in the middle of the week sometime, you're welcome here. And you get to hear this thing without all the baggage and all the stuff and for, for brand new, a virgin and fresh ears. Now, some of you, whether you've been in church or not in church, you're probably familiar with this story as the Good Samaritan. But I want you to know it is much more than a story than about the Good Samaritan. To start off, we're going to work through it verse by verse, verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up. Stop right there. Jesus was a rabbi. That means he was a teacher. And it was not uncommon when a teacher was traveling around teaching the crowds that someone would stand up from one of the crowd and they would ask him a question for the edification of that other religious leader or rabbi himself who were asking the question, but also for the edification of the crowd who was listening. Now, what we're going to see here is that there's an extra motive from the person who stands up at this time. Luke gives a little insight that the rest of the crowd probably did not recognize when he writes this. I'm going to read it again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, this seems like a very simple question. But Luke includes there, I got it circled in my Bible, this is a test. And the test is to see if Jesus agrees and is aligning himself with the other religious leaders, other experts in the law of that time, that if you follow the rules, if you were a good rule keeper, if you followed the law to the letter of the law, then that meant that you were guaranteed being reconciled to God and guaranteed that you had a place in heaven, that you had a place in eternity. But Luke is letting us know that this is really not a simple question, that there's more going on behind the question. You see, these experts in the law, these religious leaders had noticed uh, that Jesus had been teaching, and they, wasn't, they weren't really approving of his teaching. They noticed he talked about that following the rules and being a good rule keeper and following the letter of the law really wasn't enough. And so they're a little upset. They're a little bothered by this whole thing. And so they ask him this question. Now, Jesus sees right through the question. And Jesus, being a very wise teacher, instead of answering the question directly, he responds by asking his own question. Verse 26, well, tell me, what do you think? Uh, what's written in the law. How do you read it? Brilliant, brilliant. And so he responds, well, this is how I read it. 
Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Very smart. That's straight from Deuteronomy chapter 6 from a passage called the Shema. Then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, bingo. That comes from Leviticus chapter 19. He's spot on. And then Jesus says, hey, man, you have answered correctly, right? You are not the weakest link, right? You get another drop into the ball down the wall and make some more money. You've answered correctly. You are right. And then Jesus said, do this and you will live. Now, this should have been the end of the story. The expert of the law stands up, asks a question. It's got a little trick behind it. Jesus sees right through it, comes back with him, asks another question. That expert in the law gives a great answer, a wonderful answer. That should be the end of the story. But Luke here, as he's telling this, he gives a little window, a little look of the window of the soul of the expert in the law who's asking the question. And here comes the question. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus another question. And who is my neighbor? Now, in the book of Genesis, in the previous two weeks, God was looking for someone who would say, I am my brother's keeper. I will take care of my brother. In the Gospels, Jesus is kind of asking the same question with a twist. Who will tell me they will love their neighbor? I'm looking for someone who will love their neighbor as they love themselves. Now, in that day, most of the Hebrews and the religious leaders, they would define their neighbor as being someone who looked like them, who acted like them, who loved, who lived just like them. They'd say something like this, okay, I will extend my love to my neighbor. My neighbor really is my family. Uh, my neighbor, they are the people who look act, live exactly just like me. Now, Jesus, when they ask the question, who is my neighbor? He knows what's going on in this, this little tight limitations they have upon their neighbor. They have this very narrow little circle understanding of who their neighbor is. Instead of answering directly, he tells them a story. Now, this story he is telling is typical for Hebrew storytelling. And they would listen, they would listen, they would know exactly what he's doing. He's going to introduce three characters. And those three characters are each going to do three things. They're going to come into the story. They're going to do something in the story. They're going to leave or exit the story. So he introduces the character. They come into it. Then they're going to do something. And then they're going to leave and go on out. This is a typical Jewish framework on, t on storytelling and story listening. So Jesus is practicing that. So we're going to walk through this story and see what we can learn. So verse 30, in reply to the, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's going to expand their circle. They just got a real narrow little mic. He says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem, I'm in verse 30, to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, anyone listening to this story be very familiar with the 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been there myself. I've seen it, been on that little path. It's very windy. It's narrow. And there's lots of places for robbers to hide. So nobody who's listening to this story would be shocked or surprised that this guy got beaten up 
because that happened in real life all of the time. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now Luke gives us a little detail in the story to deepen our understanding. In the Hebrew culture, in the ancient world, the clothes that you wore indicated your social status. It indicated where you were on the social pecking order. So the fact that he says this man is so beaten up that his clothes are no longer near him, not even, not even close to him, he is saying that the three characters that are going to come into the story, that are going to come in and do something and leave, they're not going to have any way of knowing if this person on the side of the road fit into this narrow circle of acceptance, this acceptance of people that would be okay for them to show compassion to, that would be okay according to their rules for someone to call their neighbor. They didn't have any idea. They would have no clue. So the people listening now would be thinking, okay, here we go. The next two words that Jesus says, that's going to be the hero in the story that shows us what it's like to be a neighbor. Because we're answering the question, who is my neighbor? What does it look like to be a neighbor to your neighbor? And this is what he says. Verse 31, a priest, a priest. Now, a priest. They were going, yes, 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 this is the answer. That is a priest. Now, a priest in this day and time uh, in Jericho, they would have to be in Jerusalem for the Sabbath. And after they completed their priestly duties, either that evening, Saturday evening, or early the next morning, what we would call Sunday morning, uh, they would head out uh, when, when the sun was going down while it was still dark to escape the heat, to get out of the hustle and the bustle of the city, and they would be on a donkey. Because of their status, they would justify having a donkey, but also because this road was very dangerous and uh, there were lots of robbers, so for their own protection. So he, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, when they heard Jesus say, on the other side, the listeners would have chuckled a little bit <laughs> because they knew this really wasn't a road. This was a path, a very narrow little path, like the feet of a donkey would go on. You probably see them around here with cows or cattle. This very narrow little path, they just one by one follow each other, and there's no way you could go on the other side of the road. That what happened was, in their mind, they knew what really happened, that the donkey came upon this priest, with, with the priest, came upon this man beaten. He, with the priest, would pull back on the donkey on the reins, and it would literally step right over the man who was left laying there on the road, and he would go on. So a priest had to go down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. Now, when they heard that, they would be greatly disappointed because they held the priest up in the highest regard. They would be surprised that he did not do anything. He did nothing. And not only did he do nothing, he went on to the other side of the road. And my guess is that he just kept on going. My guess is that he's just thinking, okay. Uh, I am isolated. There's nobody out here on this 17-mile road. 
Uh, nobody's going to see me. There's nobody around. There's no security cameras out here. There's no cell phone service out here. No one's going to take my photo. Nobody's going to post it on Instagram and catch me. I, I've got busy. I'm ready to get home. I'm just going to push over this guy, and I'm just going to keep on going home. Now, when they heard that, they're thinking, man, this is awful. So certainly the next person, the next character Jesus said, certainly that person will be the hero. And so the next, next verse 32, he says, okay, so there was a Levite. They go, oh, a Levite. How relief that is. I'm so glad it's a Levite. Of course, the Levite's going to show us what it's like to be a neighbor. He's going to show us what it's like to be compassionate. We're going to understand all this uh, because the Levite, they served under the priest. They come from the tribe of Levi. Levi, one of the sons of Jacob. And the Levites are one who served in the temple under the auspices and the oversight of the priest himself. Yes, that's going to be the hero. But he says, a Levite, when he came to the place, verse 32, and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And now they're confused. Now hold it here. Where is Jesus going with this story? I mean, the priest didn't stop. The Levite didn't stop. I mean, I, what's he doing here? I, I know he's, he's telling a story about who our neighbor's going to be, and he's trying to tell us a story about who, who we're to be compassionate be and, and what it looks like to, to act on behalf of God and to love people and how far we're supposed to go and all that sort of thing. I get that. That's what he's doing. But I, I just... It's not the priest. It's not the Levite. Who could it be? Who could it be? Now, the crowds at this time, they got to be kind of wrestling. Okay, the next person's got to be it. But if it wasn't a priest and it wasn't a Levite that's going to be the hero, that means it's got to be somebody really low in the food chain like us. Wow, it's going to be somebody like us. It wasn't a priest. It's not a Levite. It's going to be a dude, a dudette. Just like one of us, a Hebrew, just a good old basic low life, sort of everyday sort of Hebrew. That, that's who it's going to be, all right. And so he reads the story, and man, are they going to be shocked when they hear the next three words. In fact, the next three words, when I say the next three words, if you were listening to this story and you were Hebrew, you'd go, oh, PG-13 at least. It says, but a, verse 33, but a Samaritan. And when the little moms heard that, they would cover their kids' ear. I can't believe you're saying that. No, no, no. I can't. No, impossible. They, they just could not believe. Their mind would have been blown that Jesus would have said that. They would have been shocked. They would not be able to believe what they heard. So let me speak to you just for a second right here before we get back into the story. I want you, if you can, to imagine someone in the circles of your life People that are so far outside of your little circle. People that you would allow into your space. People that are so far out, you would not feel comfortable entering into their space. Maybe it's some sort of political thing. Maybe some sort of social status issue. Maybe some sort of social economic issue. Maybe it's someone because of their, their, their gender identity preference and all the sort of things that they're going on, the choices that people are making out there in the culture. I could go on and on and on. Maybe it's the way that somebody is choosing to manage COVID totally different the way that you think COVID should be managed. I want you to imagine somebody that according to your, your perspective, 
They're so far outside the little circle of your circle of acceptance of things that you think that will be okay that you would give yourself a pass on showing compassion to them. You would give yourself a pass on treating them, as the Scripture says, like your neighbor. You see, that, that, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in the text. He is challenging them to think outside the concentric circles of their life, to give them expand their understanding of not only who is their neighbor that they are to minister to, but showing someone who really understands what it is to be a neighbor that's beyond what they even have any understanding. And this, the Samaritan was the most leak likely person they would imagine. Uh, they were considered a half-breed nation by the Jew. Uh, they were despised by the Jew. If a Jewish person was leaving from Jerusalem to go down to the south of Israel, or they were leaving from Jerusalem to go to the north toward Judah, they would travel miles out of the way, inconveniencing themselves, not even to pass, not even to see someone who was called a Samaritan. And now Jesus is saying the Samaritan is not even, not just the hero of the story. Samaritan is not, he's just not implying that Samaritan is their neighbor. And he's not just implying that Samaritan is the neighbor to whom they might even want to take care of and see themselves as someone in need. He takes the knife and he twists it deeper and deeper and deeper. The priest comes through, he does nothing. The Levite comes through, he does nothing. But the Samaritan, this disgustable human being, disgusting human being, comes through and does seven do's. Jesus paints saints seven imaginative ideas of what he does to do something kind for the neighbor. And in the eyes of the Hebrew, seven meant perfection. It means just everything right in place. So he's saying the Samaritan, you're saying the Samaritan is more perfect, is more holy, is more righteous than I am? Yep. And here's what he says. Here are the seven things. Uh, starting off right here in verse 33. First of all, uh, he saw the man, he took compassion. He had compassion on him. And then, verse 34, he went to him. He, got, he closed this space, the distance between him. He went and bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine, that is an ointment, a heating ointment, uh, an antiseptic on his body. Then he put the man on his own donkey. That meant he had to get off of his donkey, put the man on his donkey, then he takes him to an inn, and he takes care of him. And then he takes out money, he gives him to the innkeeper, and he pays for the care and for the man of him. Unbelievable. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And the going, no, 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 no. He's saying, yes, yes, yes. And not only that, he returns later on. He actually comes back later. And he tells the guy, listen, do you have any other expenses? Let me pay for them right now. And the listener would have been just mind-boggling. And I can picture Jesus telling this story, and he just stops in order to silence. Just kind of hangs there. And they're considering all this. And then Jesus fires back with his own question, verse 36. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Then Jesus says, go and do, do likewise. Jesus was a master storyteller. I promise you, when these people left, this story stuck with them. They wrestled with it for days. And in their mind, they're thinking, what did I just hear? What did I just hear? I'm so proud of you as a church. I find myself quite humbled and fortunate to be considered one of your pastors. In the past several years, you literally have come alongside people who have been beaten and stranded on the side of the road, and you have given out 125 cars, some were vans, some were trucks, to people whom life had been beaten up, just left them to the side of the road. They had a job. They had the opportunity to take care of insurance. They, they could kind of manage the car. But you just given them 125 vehicles. Amazing. Radically changed their life. Now, that we call it Cars for Christ. It's a beautiful ministry. It's reconciling people back to God and letting them know that God cares. And instead of stopping here for a moment and telling you all the incredible stories of people that have been beaten up on the side of the road that you have cared for and ministered through this ministry called Cars for Christ, uh, I want to tell you the genesis of Cars for Christ in, in Pathway Church. And it starts back in Odessa before Dallas and I were ever here. Uh, when Dallas and I lived in Odessa, we lived in a little cul-de-sac. In this cul-de-sac, most of the people there went to church. They were church people, except for our neighbors to our right. Uh, it was the Dye family. They were about five years older than us. Uh, they had one child about the same age as our child then, Justin. Uh, they were from California. Uh, he was a petroleum engineer. She was a stay-at-home mom, kind of a new-age sort of mom with, with uh, all this pottery stuff and everything. And Dallas and I kind of thought it was our job uh, to invite them to come to church with us because we had a church there in Odessa that we loved and very active and a part of. And so we did. And one weekend, I was going to be teaching. I was going to be preaching that weekend. I was a youth minister and associate pastor. I said, hey, listen, um, friends, neighbors, I'm going to be teaching. Why don't you come to church with us? And I said, oh, he said, I can't. You know, I got this big project due on Monday. I got to get that done. She said, I got these things, these, these pottery in my kiln. I got to get them finished in time. This is a good excuse. We said, okay, no big deal. Uh, weeks pass, but we're not going to give up. Another opportunity comes. We invite them to come to a fall festival. There's going to be hot dogs and games and stuff for the kids. Hey, listen, uh, your daughter Veronica, our son Justin, they can play together and have a great time. Why don't you go with us? The kids will play. We'll introduce you to some people. And this time it was a little, uh, well, not so good excuse. They had another excuse, but it was, ah, you know what? I think I need to change the oil in my car. <laughs> uh, she said, yeah, you know, I think I need a, my toenails. I need a pedicure, a manicure. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, we just, I thought, Okay. I told Dallas, you know, I just don't think they want to go to church with us. And duh, you think? And so uh, we didn't ask again for a long time. And so Dallas and I, we try to be good neighbors. Um, his dad got put in the hospital, and I went and saw him and visited him a little bit. And uh, Dallas and Nancy there next door, they would change recipes, and our kids would play. And 
they needed to install a ceiling fan. I went over there to help install the ceiling fan. I fell through the roof, uh, the ceiling, not the roof, the ceiling, put a big old hole in it. That's another story. But, you know, just neighbor stuff and everything. And then out of the blue, uh, one week they said, hey, listen, winter worship service. I mean, this is months that passed. We would love to come to your church this weekend. I went, whoa, man, where, what, what, what happened? What changed all that? Because they were dead set against religion and against faith in this church. And here's what happened. They had a, a nanny who was also kind of a house cleaner for them, came two or three times a week. She was up from Mexico. She had her green card. She was a very hard worker. She was a single mom, um, several kids. Her husband had just kind of walked off and left her stranded, and she was doing everything she could to make ends meet. And one day she shows up to work there at the Dye house, and she said, hey, listen, you're not going to believe what just happened. It's incredible. To the church that I don't even go to, they gave me a van. And in the van, there was these free oil changes and car washes and everything. I can't believe it. I don't even go to that church. It's going to radically change my life. And the Dye family, they, they got so excited, really started asking questions, asking questions. And eventually, um, they said, I think that's the church that our neighbors go to. We've got to learn more about that church. Several years before Dallas and I ever arrived there, so you had the backstory. Uh, there was a man who stumbled into worship. And I mean, literally kind of stumbled in. He was at the lowest of the lows. He was the oil field mechanic. He had lost his job. Uh, he had lost his family. Uh, drugs, addiction, gambling had just done him in. And he was so low, at the lowest of the lows, he stumbled into the church, and he was open to anything. He was just, oh, he would just sit there on the back row, just sit there. And he would listen to the message and listen to the music week after week after week after week. And over time, he began to hear the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus' love, his reconciling love. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And all of a sudden, he began to kind of wake up and get healed. He was baptized. He joined the church. He got involved in a small group. That small group rallied around him. And they helped him get into a recovery group and to get clean and get sober. Uh, they helped him get his resume up and going and do interviews and find a job. They helped him find marital counseling. Eventually brought their, his wife came back to the, to the small group. She eventually goes to counseling with him. And now the family is coming back together. And over a couple of years, he gets reconciled to God. He gets reconciled back to his family. And he gets reconciled back to his work. He was so moved by all that that the love of God compelled him to go speak to the pastor. And he said, hey, listen, there's not a single thing that I can't repair at the motor or an engine and that if it's broken, I can fix it. Got a lot of wealthy people here in the church in the oil patch. Why don't you invite them to bring their old beat-up cars to the church, let me repair them, and then we'll give them away to anyone who needs them. We'll find a way to connect people uh, who are beaten up and stranded by life. And man, over the course of time, uh, that little church there in Odessa, man, just they, they started it. They started this ministry there. And not only did those cars put in the hands of many of them single moms, just like right here at Pathway, many of them single moms, but not all of them, did it get them back on the road and minister to them as their neighbor. But our own neighbors, who were totally turned off church, got reconciled to God and reconciled to each other because of a man years ago who got reconciled to God. Church, I'm just telling you, that's how God works. 
that when you and I get engaged as the hands and feet of Jesus, doing things with our hands and feet for one another and for people in the world, God moves and works in powerful ways. Now, December 24th is around the corner. And every year we do something right here called birthday gift to Jesus. And birthday gift to Jesus is recognition that Christmas Eve is Jesus' birthday. Christmas is his birthday, not ours. And so since 2005, you've been challenged to match every, every dollar you spend on the, your friends and family. And you bring it to the church for Jesus' birthday. And 90% of our outreach every year, being the hands and feet to our neighbors, is done through birthday gift to Jesus. Over $2 million by you in 2015. Now, three or four weeks ago, we shared with you what God was doing all around the world. But this, this evening, this morning, right now at this time right here, uh, Cheyenne is going to give you an idea on how God is using your birthday gift to Jesus to reconcile people who are your neighbors right here in your own backyard.